I'll begin by reading 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 to 8. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who sets this aside is not setting aside man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Our Father, we pray now for the work of your Spirit to illuminate our understanding to even drive away distracting thoughts and cause us to focus on this passage. We pray that it would be edifying to your people and even uh, to bring conviction to those specifically who ought to engage the fight against this specific sin uh, with a new and renewed uh, violence and seriousness. We pray that we would see great things from your word here and that we would not only feel conviction for sin, but also be shown the way out of it and to be led to Christ ultimately out of our sin. And so we pray that you would help us to hear and to speak now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've entitled this sermon, A Solemn Warning Against Sexual Immorality. It's quite a serious passage, and I did that because that just comes right out of the text. In my translation, in verse 6, there's the word solemn warning. So as a preacher, we're, we're concerned not just how to explain the passage, but also try to capture the tone of the passage as well. And so that's the, the setting, that's the, the tone this morning. Not the tone every morning. We've been in these first three chapters of First Thessalonians perhaps the most encouraging letter in the New Testament of Paul's writings. He's encouraging these new believers. Uh, He's he's fondly remembering them, expressing his love for them. And we've spent the last several months going through chapters 1 to 3 and just seeing the history of Paul's relationship with this church. And it was a sweet relationship. But last week we saw that he still had some concerns for the church. He still knew, okay, this church is on the right path. These are Christians. These are children of God. But there are some deficiencies. There's some legitimate deficiencies in their faith. And he prayed, you remember, for the opportunity to return to them to address those specific deficiencies, maybe things they were confused about when Jesus would return and how that interacted with people that had died. We'll get to that but also some practical Christian living issues. They had come red hot out of the pagan world 
filled with all sorts of sin and debauchery and immorality. And all of a sudden, boom, they're in the church. And a very different ethic, very different set of moral values. Now, as a child of God, as a Christian, someone following the Lord Jesus Christ, and that transformation hadn't been completed, obviously, just as today with us, we all are walking the path. I, I pray, that's my prayer, and my expectation is that we all have that heart that wants to follow Christ. But we have to be honest with ourselves that we, we have deficiencies in our faith. And maybe we're also confused a little bit about the whole Christian life. Uh, what, there's, it seems like so much in this book, it's frankly overwhelming for me to figure out where do I, where do I even start? My life is a mess. <laughs> what, where's just the first place to start? Tell me the first step to take. And it's the same in the church as in our schooling system. I mean, a child has to learn the alphabet before he can read Shakespeare, right? The same way a Christian, there's certain fundamental lessons you need to learn before you can progress on to other things. I mean, don't think about spiritual leadership and things like that if, if you, you just don't know the basics, right? There's a progression that we all have. And so God is going to show us, show you, uh, just give you very practical help today in living the Christian life. And we're turning a point in this letter of 1 Thessalonians from this big narrative section uh, referring to Paul's relationship with the church And he's now going to launch into specific commands and instructions to the church. So thus far, we've been kind of looking at Paul and this church as examples to follow. But now we're going to dive into the commands. And some of you may appreciate that a little bit more. You may want just the, just give me the commands. Just give me one, two, three. Um, And the Bible is happy to give you those commands. I mean, there's theology, of course, as well. And all of the the practical Christian living is built upon theology. But nonetheless, there are these commands in Scripture. And so God is going to give us two directions this morning. One is general, and the other would be more specific. And just briefly, let's look at the general introduction to the Christian life in the first two verses here. God wants you just generally to, to have an accurate picture of what the Christian life means. Okay, and there's four attitudes in these first two verses I want to call your attention to briefly. Right here, Paul says to them, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. So notice the instruction for living, it's not just a philosopher making observations about human life. The same way a lot of people do today, they write self-help books. They study human behavior and they draw from that some principles and, and get past those on to you. No, that's not the way the moral instruction comes to the Christian, just as a philosopher. It's coming to us as those who are in the Lord Jesus. So notice that. And don't miss that, especially in the New Testament, when there's all these phrases, in Christ, in the Lord Jesus, according to the Lord Jesus, according to the gospel, we are being exhorted to live a certain way in the Lord Jesus. And remember that the whole universe exists to exalt Jesus. I mean, we can't be confused about that. Why am I alive? Why am I living today? What's the purpose of life? Well, the purpose, it revolves all around Christ. The purpose of all things is to exalt Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says, All things have been created through him and for him. 
That's a pretty staggering thought. To think that everything in life, from the natural world to human relationships, to your job or family, it all exists for the Lord Jesus. And so because of that, the Christian life, just in general, centers around Christ. We think of Christ when we wake up. We, we speak to him during the day. We, we say even things that you might consider Christian cliches. Oh, the Lord was so kind to me today. Or I asked the Lord such and such. Or the Lord gave me this. Or the Lord has been with me. So we say those things because we're living in the Lord. And so when we come to church and hear commands from the scripture, when we read it, commands in our devotional times, those commands are coming to us from our Lord, but we are united to our Lord. We're united to him. And so we're not being addressed as mere slaves of the Lord, right? We're not just being addressed as or threatened um, as enemies, so to speak, but we're being addressed as co-members of the same body of Christ. So that's a lot different from just trying to obey some traditional moral precepts. Maybe your ancestors passed on to you. Well, we just live this way. We just live a certain way. Well, no, there's reasoning behind this. And our life centers around the Lord. But second, notice that our goal is now to please God. So first, we live in the Lord. That's our first attitude. Second attitude, we focus on pleasing God. Right? And that's what Paul's ultimately exhorting the church. And all the commands that flow out of uh, these, first, these final two chapters in the letter, uh, you can summarize them all as how to please God. That God's commandments, it's just a synonym for how you can live in a way that pleases God. That's the goal, right? The goal in life isn't to feel better. The goal in life isn't to be happy and healthy and wealthy as the ultimate end and God's just this butler that helps you get there. That's not the goal. The goal is to please God, to please God, right? God, he doesn't have to prove to us over and over and over that he wants the best thing for our lives, those of us who are his people. He doesn't have to show you that and and whisper in your ear that every single morning. He already proved that to us at the cross, didn't he? He already proved that to us. And so since we're convinced of the Lord's care for us, We can go through storms, we can go through dark valleys, we can go through sickness and poverty and suffering, and we can have as our goal to please God. That's the Christian's goal. The Christian says, I know that you are good and doing good this very moment, even though I can't see it, even though I can't see how that's working, how that's happening. But I will nonetheless please you regardless of what I see Today. So our attitude is to please God. But third, we strive for excellence. And Paul says that. He says, abound more and more. So it's, it's not, he's not content to have the church just sh- shake itself free from, you know, to leave the pagan temple. And okay, now you're in the church and you believed in the Lord Jesus. And, you know, we can just buckle in, buckle up, and eventually we'll die and go to heaven No, the Christian has this attitude of striving for excellence, striving for the highest degree of obedience and holiness possible in this life, right? We don't sink, in other words, we don't sink into despair when we fail. I mean, we mourn over our sin, but eventually 
we move on. We, we got to move on. I mean, we all fail. We all fall. We all stumble. But what's important is that we are dealing with that biblically, confessing our sin to God, making restitution for those toward those we've sinned against, and then we move on. You know, we fall down a hundred times, we get back up, we dust ourselves off again. We don't despair. God said he will complete the good work he began in us. He promised to complete it. And so that's why the Christian can get back up. We get back in the fight. We don't just say, I'm done, I hate, I hate myself, I hate everything, I'm no good. No, that's not, that's not the Christian attitude. Come on, we need to get back in the fight. So we strive for excellence. But finally, in verse 2, we see that we live a commandment-oriented life, not a feeling-oriented life. So an unbeliever lives a feeling-oriented life. I feel like I need to blank, and so therefore I do that. Or I feel this is true, so I believe it. But a believer is, is so different because now he lives a commandment-oriented life. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Not, oh, this is how to feel better, right? The, the, I mean, good feelings will come naturally. I can just tell you that by experience and from the scripture that you will feel better in a lot of ways living life God's way. But we can't, that can't be our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our master. He is our Lord. He is our king. And frankly, it's easy to obey a perfect authority, isn't it? Isn't it what makes it hard to obey often when that authority is an abusive authority or a corrupt authority? It makes it hard. But the Lord Jesus is a perfect authority. He said his yoke would be easy and his burden would be light. There is a real yoke that we wear on our shoulders as his disciples, but that yoke is far lighter, far easier than any false religion any other way of living. And our emotions betray us. Isn't that true? I mean, our emotions will betray us, so you can know that. At some point, your emotions will just be way off, way out there in a moment of weakness. You just can't trust those. You, dis- you place mistrust in your emotions. They, are, they will betray you. You need to adopt the commandment-oriented life as a believer. And so just briefly, that's a a picture of the Christian life, these four attitudes, right? We live in the Lord. The Lord is the center. We focus on pleasing God. We strive for excellence, and then we live a commandment-oriented life. And so because of that, we need to ask ourselves, well, okay, I want to live a commandment-oriented life. What's the first thing I should look at? My life is, is a train wreck. I'm just coming in hot into the church. Okay, coming in hot, where do I look first? <laughs> what should I focus my attention on first? I mean, John Piper, a, a prominent preacher, he's written a book recently, I believe, called All That Jesus Commandment, Commanded. So the Great Commission is to obey all that Jesus commanded, to teach people to obey everything he commanded, there's a lot of commands he gave. And if I were to just put all of those on you or just rattle them off for the next half hour, you would be pretty overwhelmed. Okay, so God this morning wants you to take a look at one specific issue in the, in the Christian life, one specific commandment 
or prohibition, it's a negative prohibition, to focus on. And so we've seen the general picture of the Christian life, but now let's look specifically at a warning, a specific warning God gives us as people that want to follow the Lord Jesus. He says in verse 3, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so here's the warning that God gives us this morning. He wants you to cultivate a fear of sexual immorality, specifically. And I chose those words carefully. Cultivate a fear of this sin. There are many pitfalls in the Christian life. There's many hooks, so to speak, from the world of fishing. There's many different baits and hooks that we could bite uh, in, in our succumbing to sin. And all of those, to one degree or another, will, will bring hardship into our life, will make life difficult. But there's one in particular that is especially ensnaring. Uh, there's one hook or trap that Satan has placed so prominently all over the world that if you give yourself to, there's no guarantee that you'll return from it. There's no guarantee you'll return from it. This is one of the most dangerous traps you will meet with. The Christian life is like a road, like a path. And there's pits. You can slip off the road in many different points. But there's one pit in particular that has more, has caused the death of more people than others. I would even say millions. And that's the sin of sexual immorality. Back then, in the first century in Thessalonica, in the Greco-Roman world, this was rampant, as you may expect. It wasn't a Christian culture at all. Uh, the Jewish nation was, was relatively isolated. There were Jewish synagogues in different cities. But by and large, if you grew up in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, you grew up with sexual immorality everywhere. I mean, you'd walk down the street in Ephesus, there's a brothel right there. So those of you maybe who have visited Pompeii, places like that, I mean, there's still relics. There's still vestiges of brothels there. I mean, it's just the bank, the grocery store, and the brothel, so to speak, right? It was everywhere. I mean, you would go to your re- whatever your religion was. Uh, sexual immorality would be practiced in the temple, in the, the so-called churches of the pagan religions, of the false religions there. Paul is most likely writing this letter from Corinth, and, and in Corinth there were, uh, there's an acropolis with, with women, you know what I mean, what kind of women, they would come down at night and peddle their, their wares as a religious exercise. Aphrodite uh, was the cult goddess of prostitutes. Uh, this was not frowned upon really. Um, It was treated either with mild indifference or approval in their world. So you're in Thessalonica hearing the gospel. The Holy Spirit brings conviction to you. You're born again. You believe in Christ for salvation. But this is the world you're coming out of. You're coming out of this culture. And today, are we better today? Are we better today? I would argue that we are Worse, maybe not as, as graphic and blatant. I mean, Orland, 
Last I checked, I didn't notice a brothel anywhere on the main street. But a recent survey surveyed people that would call themselves Christians in the United States, in the, in the West. And they just asked the question, do you approve of casual sex? What do you think, what percentage do you think said yes? Well, it would be zero, wouldn't it? I mean, they've read the Ten Commandments. Um, yeah, that's a basic thing. 50% of professing Christians in America agree that casual sex is permitted between consenting adults. Hmm. Many Christians watch pornography, which in many cases, as we're beginning to find out from lawsuits, involves children and slaves. So in the ancient world, there were, there were female slaves that people would abuse. And we think it's so easy to think, oh, that's horrible. Well, at least, at least that man fed his slaves. He didn't just take advantage of the slavery of people and indulge himself in this disgusting behavior. I would argue that given how much light we have, how much scripture has gone through our culture, that we're worse because we're the same, if not lower level of depravity. And yet we have all this truth. We have all this truth. We have the Bible in our language. We have a million study Bibles. We can listen to sermons anytime we want. I mean, there are churches in every town. I know they're not all fantastic, but there are churches in this. It's not like we're living in the cult of Zeus or the cult of Aphrodite. But look at how much immorality is saturating our culture. And I'm, I mean, I'm not naive. I'm not naive. I know that some percentage of us are still struggling with this sin, that this is still an active struggle in our life. And so my prayer is not so much to distance you and say, well, if you're struggling with this, get out. That's not at all the message I want you to take away. At the same time, the church is too casual about this sin. The church really is too casual about this sin today. It's just a struggle. I struggle with immorality. Oh yeah, I'm still working through that. There's this casual tone about this sin. And you would even hear prominent pastors say things like, well, the Bible whispers about sexual sin, but it screams about the sin of racism or things like that. Well, the Bible doesn't whisper about sexual immorality. I hope that's clear from this passage, just reading it at face value. And so if I can accomplish that today, if I can just change the tone about this issue, about this sin in the church, I'll be content. I'll be content if we can put away this kind of casual indifference, this casual mild disapproval of this behavior and instead, it's something we have a healthy fear of. I'm afraid, I'm have a healthy fear of that sin. It's not that I'm so much looking down on other people that are, are falling into that, but I am very careful about this sin. I know how dangerous it is, and I'm not going to play with it. I'm not going to play with it. So let's look at how God reasons with us about this issue from this passage starting in verse 3. So he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
God is good. He is a perfect being, and in his goodness, he wants the best thing for you. So what he's commanding and asking for you or inviting you to, it's not to this glum, dreary lifestyle. He wants the best thing for you. The best thing for you. What would be, okay, what is the best thing for you as someone coming out of this kind of lifestyle and out of this gross immorality that maybe you have practiced in the past? What, what is the best thing God could give you? Well, it would be your sanctification, wouldn't it? Because what is the most, what is the best thing, or in other words, what is the source of all blessing? What is the source of all joy? It's God, isn't it? It's God himself. And so the call to sanctification is the call to leave the swamp. God's calling you out of the swamp. And he's saying, come live with me in perfect harmony and glory clean yourself off, live a new kind of life, experience the joy of knowing me and living in my presence forever. God wants your sanctification. And as I said, to define that, that just means separation. We're separating ourselves from sin and we're moving more and more toward God, towards Christ-likeness. We want to become more like God. Right In the Old Testament, the idea of sanctifying a piece of gold or some lumber for the sake of the tabernacle. That's how God used to be worshipped in Israel. Well, they would take this lumber of acacia wood or or gold that they would mine, and they they would sanctify it by bringing it into the sanctuary of God. So something would be taken out of the common world and placed for special devoted use to God. And so that's the picture that, that, that's the picture of our lives, the kind of change that has to happen in our lives. We're leaving things behind, and we're now devoting ourselves to God, to doing his will. And he says, this is your, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Obviously, sanctification it does not begin and end with sexual purity. That's not the, the comprehensive beginning and end of it. But it is lesson one. It is the basics. I mean, this is the ground floor of sanctification. If, if we're, still, we're still losing here uh, as, a, as a pattern of life, I mean, we haven't made it far. We haven't made it far. And it's really a lie for people to say, oh, or to believe that, oh, all, all people, whether they're Christians or not, I mean, this is just so common. We all struggle with this. Well, okay, lust in the heart, sure, everyone will struggle with that till they die. But gross, external, habitual expressions of sexual immorality, not every Christian man or woman struggles with that. That's not true. You can have victory over that. And many people have. And honestly, if I thought I was in in that level, just on a personal note, if I felt like I still had not gotten a grip on that area of my life, I wouldn't be here. I mean, I would kick myself out the back door. Who am I to to tell you about living as a Christian? And I haven't even gotten past the kindergarten. So I really, that might be humbling for you to hear, but it really is step one. It's lesson one. I mean, this is kindergarten for us. And the point is not to belittle you, but just say, to encourage you, this is where you should focus. 
if this isn't in order, if this area of your life isn't in order, put some effort in here. Focus on this before you start thinking about uh, having all types of influential ministries or starting a soup kitchen or feeding the world poor. I mean, okay, let's do that sometime in the future. But for now, for today, let's focus here. But consider a second argument that Paul says in verse 4. He says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And honor. So, The call to be sanctified is the call to possess your own vessel, which is another way of saying body, in a certain kind of way, uh, in honor. So your body is not just raw material. You're not an animal. You're not just dust. You have inherent worth and dignity because you're made in the image of God as, as a human being. I mean, you have a dignity that's above anything else in this world, above the sun, above Yosemite, above other animals. I mean, you are made in the image of God. And no matter who you are today, your life does have value and dignity because of that. But then second of all, you have dignity if you're a believer. I mean, God has chosen to display his mercy through you in a special way that is not seen in anywhere else in creation. I mean, you are a trophy of God's grace and and of his mercy. And so to to give yourself to this kind of sin, to sexual immorality, it's like taking trophies out of God's palace, throwing them in the dirt. I mean, you are meant to reflect and display God's glory. God's glory. And you do that through sanctification by abstaining from sexual immorality. I mean, doesn't your conscience, con- conscience agree with this? I mean, when you engage in immorality, uh, how do you wake up the next morning? Is your conscience congratulating you for that? Is it saying you are really an upstanding, dignified, honorable individual? It doesn't, unless your conscience is just blasted to smithereens and hardened. I don't think it's saying that to you. And if you feel shame for that, I mean, that's built in. That's by design. That's by design. And, and I would not be serving you well by saying, oh, don't worry. Uh, your shame is just the result of, of psychological knots that someone needs to untie. And you just keep doing it anyway. No, the shame is there to warn you. It's there to warn you. This is not how you live. This is not how you live. You can live a dignified life. You can raise a family. You can be a devoted husband or wife. You can be a servant to other people. God created you for dignity, to be an honorable person. And the good news is that the believer can master his passions. You may be uh, tempted to despair of this because you've had such a habit of indulging in this behavior that you think, I would want that so much to free myself of that, but I, I just have such a history of this sin. I can't. I can't free myself of this. Well, here, Paul assumes the opposite. He says, you each need to know how to possess or to master, in other words, your body, your vessel. The Christian is enabled by the Holy Spirit to subdue his passions, to to wrangle them, to wrestle them down, 
I mean, we can do this with the Holy Spirit. We can live this way. But it requires humility. Uh, It requires uh, the humility and the willingness to accept accountability for your sin. It requires uh, a, a type of violence and seriousness in fighting the sin to cut off access to temptation, even if that makes your life really inconvenient and difficult. I mean, it is a war. It is a war. I mean, this is an, a wild animal to subdue and to tame. That's the way God described it to Cain. Your sin is lying at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Verse 5. So we're to live a sanctified life, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. So not in lustful passion. Lustful passion would be abandoning yourself to your carnal desires. To hear the the alarm bells going off in your head and just ignore them and say, I know something inside of me is, is going, there's an alarm going off, but I'm going to totally ignore that and just give myself to this practice. That's characteristic of who? What does the passage say? What, who, what kind of person lives like that, this kind of life? Like the pagans, the Gentiles, the heathen maybe, the old, as the old version has it. Um, like the Gentiles, in other words, like unbelievers, like these, these pagans I was referring about earlier that visited the, the cults of Aphrodite and, and etc., Uh, What characterizes them is lustful passion. In other words, this lifestyle characterizes someone that doesn't know God. Isn't that what the text is saying? And so here we're getting more to the warning aspect of the passage. So if you live this kind of life, and this pattern exists in your life of, of giving yourself to sexual immorality, what does this passage, what does verse 5 say about you? What does it say? You don't know God. Well, who are you to tell me that I don't know God? God's telling you you don't know God. It's in the passage, isn't it? Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles that do not know God. And there is a logical relationship between the worship of God and the knowledge of God and sexual immorality. And that connection is drawn in many places in Scripture. Consider just two. Romans 1, verse 24. So people rejected the natural revelation that we read about in Psalm 19. You see the sun, you see the world, you look at your hand. There must be a God. Well, people reject that. And so what does God do? In judgment, God gives them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, another word for immorality, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged. So here's the reason why God gave them over. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Why is our culture so neck deep in sexual immorality, it's because they rejected God. They rejected God a long time ago, and God has given them over to what they want. They want to go this way. They want to live this, this way. God tries to restrain them, but at some point, God gives them over in judgment to live that way and to just plunge themselves into the deep end 
of immorality. Ephesians 5 verse 5 says, For this you know with certainty, that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. That's pretty strong, isn't it? This you know with certainty. You can know for certain that you don't know God and that you don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God if you live in sexual immorality. You can be 100% certain about that. You don't need to wonder, oh, I wonder how it will go with me in the judgment. It will 100% go toward condemnation if this characterizes your life. Verse 6 He continues that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. This is a serious crime, in other words, what verse 6 is saying. And we often don't think about this. Our culture, what does our culture say about sex? Well, if it's, as long as it's safe, it's okay, right? I mean, that is, that's the conditions for engaging in sexual behavior, sexual activity. As long as it's safe, as long as there's consent, that's fine. Is it fine? How many of us grew up in homes that were broken by sexual immorality? Between consenting adults, was that fine for you? Was that fine for you? It, I don't think it was. No matter how much of scripture you know, I mean, you know, just as a kid, looking at what's going on around you, this is a horrible thing that's happening. This is not just, you know, going outside, playing around outside your your marriage. This is devastating your family. I mean, this is destroying your family, your children, even churches, nations. I mean, this sin has collateral damage that you often don't think about. You often don't think about that. You just think, well, this is bad, but I, but I have this desire, and it stops there. But, I mean, think of kids. Think of your neighbors. Think of your family. I mean, think of our church. Think of, think of this specific church. If, if that were to happen in someone that's, that's here regularly, I mean, just how much devastation that would cause. It's a serious crime. And God doesn't let crimes go unpunished. The Lord, Jesus here, is called the avenger. And I think most of our translations have that, right? The avenger. Um, And it's not like the comic book type person. Uh, It's more official than that, right? It's the judge. It's the lawmaker. It's the jury, the executioner. Those functions that exist in our society are all bound up in the office that Christ occupies. So the Lord is called the avenger, not just in general, but of this specific sin. He's the avenger. And he will see that justice is served. The families that are ruined by this sin, he will have his day of justice for this. Would you commit this sin in any of its forms, if you knew that the Lord was sharpening his sword outside your window, that the moment that you were done indulging in your lust, that the Lord would execute justice on you 
for this? How would that change how you're thinking about it? I mean, am I going too far here? Am I going too far with that picture? Psalm 11 says, If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. I mean, that's in the Psalms that we've read maybe a few months ago. If a man doesn't repent of this sin, the Lord has his sword, and he's sharpening his sword, preparing to take vengeance on that man. Consider how many weapons the Lord Jesus has. It's not just this this threat of hell way out there in the future. I mean, there's consequences in this life for sexual immorality. Consider some of the suffering that might come into your life if you give yourself to this sin. David said in one of the Psalms, after his sin, it's assumed, uh, committing adultery and murder, he said, There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities go over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. In other words, his conscience was on fire. He was a, and he was a believer. He was a believer. So don't think just because you're a believer, God is just going to let you say, keep sailing on. And your, your repentance, it'll just be, well, I'm sorry, and I'll do it again. I'm sorry, I'll do it again. God may give you a special pain in your conscience to discipline you and give you such a foul taste for this sin in the future that only that grief will be strong enough to drive you away. He may do that in his kindness, but that will be great suffering for you just in your conscience. But consider also disease. The Proverbs say, speak a lot about immorality. Proverbs 5, the father's warning his sons about this sin. He says, your flesh and your body may be consumed. We may be consumed. I mean, I don't want to be graphic. I don't want to be distasteful. But frankly, you could contract horrible diseases by this kind of lifestyle. I mean, people don't want to tell you that, right? Your friends that live this way, they don't want to, they don't talk about that. You may have heard it sometime in high school or junior high or, or whatever. But the, the Bible warns about that. There are physical diseases that could, that could handicap you. I mean, there are not cures for all of them. Some of them have cures by now. Some of them don't. But consider also poverty. Also something you don't think about. Proverbs 5 verse 10 says, Strangers may be satisfied by your strength. So your whole life you've, you've worked to, to live a stable life. You have a home. You have property. And not because you're greedy. You've just worked hard. You've worked hard. Right? And you've, you've worked and you've saved. And you have a place to live with, with possessions that give you a measure of comfort. Well, this sin often does lead to poverty. I mean, divorce, that's not cheap. It's not cheap. Something Satan doesn't want you to think about. He thinks, oh, you just split and that's it, right? Well, it's not. It costs money. You may have to give up your possessions. That may be part of it. But consider also that there's shame in this life. Proverbs 6, still in the same section of Proverbs, chapter 5 to chapter 7, says his reproach will not be blotted out. And this is why, especially for a pastor to engage in this sin and then to presume to come back to spiritual leadership, that's just a joke. That's just a joke. His reproach won't be blotted out. It doesn't say there's no forgiveness for his sin. 
It doesn't say the church won't welcome him back with open arms, but, but this sin, I mean, it stains your, your, your standing in the community. I mean, people, they may love you, but there is a respect you lose when you live like this, especially among God's people. So there is reproach. There is shame. Uh, there are enemies you will make. Proverbs 6 says, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. And that's not talking about God. That's just talking about an offended man. So you fool around with his wife. He will not spare in the day of vengeance. And we hear about this periodically, right? Uh, a man engaging in this kind of behavior uh, recently, this was in the news some time ago, her brother found out about it. What did her brother do? He, drove, he picked up the guy in his car, drove him through San Francisco, and then reached down in his pocket and had a kitchen knife, and he ended his life. And the guy, he, he didn't have a plan to escape. He didn't have this slick plan. He was so enraged. He didn't care if he went to prison. He didn't care if he was executed, served life in prison. He had so much anger in that moment. He was willing to accept those consequences for the sake of taking vengeance on this man. And we don't think about that. There will be vengeance from other people, and it's not that they're right to, I mean, that man wasn't right, of course, to do that, and that's not what we're saying. But there are enemies that we make when we live like this. But even more seriously, there's death. Proverbs 7 says, numerous are those killed by her. Numerous, right? It says, numerous are those killed by her. Many people have fallen in this sin. I mean, many people have heard a sermon like this and just kind of left, hmm, you know, that guy was really conservative, I guess. Or, man, that guy really takes the Bible literally. But where are they now? They're dead. They're dead. Numerous are those killed by her, by sexual immorality. And finally, there's hell. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, their part, referring to, among others, the sexually immoral, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So again, if you are a true believer, you will live different. And if you're living this way characteristically, you're not trying to change. You're not trying to, you're not really trying to change. And you say you're a Christian, well, if this characterizes your life, the scriptures say that you will end up in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. I mean, that's hellfire and brimstone right there in the Bible. And I can't neglect saying that. Warn there is a real warning. And just personally, I warn you that whether you're a believer or not, the next time you're tempted to this sin, I mean, be warned. I'm warning you. Hear my voice. I'm warning you that the Lord may punish you severely for this. In, if you're a believer, he's going to grab you back. And that's not going to be painless. There may be consequences to that. He will still accept you ultimately as his child if you repent. And if he, and if he grabs you back from that. But that will be painful. I mean, don't, don't minimize that. Don't just say, oh, I can always ask for forgiveness later. You will... You will if you will not say that afterwards. So if you ignore the warning and you just say, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Well, afterward, you won't think so lightly of it. I can promise you that. 
but let's move on. So the Lord is the avenger, but now in verse 7, we see that this is part of the gospel call. So it says, God did not call us to impurity, but in sanctification. So there is a call of God that goes out into the world. We call that the gospel call. It's an invitation. So when we hear the gospel, we're hearing God through the scriptures calling us to do something, to respond, to, live, to leave our life, our, our, our life that characterized uh, how we lived, and to, to eternal life, to a different kind of life. He's, he's inviting us to something new. And so this is where we get in trouble when we separate the call to be saved from the call to purity or from the call to sanctification. These are, we, these are not divided. They're not separate calls. It's not, okay, you're five and at camp, pray this prayer and then, you're, okay, you're saved. Here's your ticket to heaven. And at some point, you know, after you fool around in college and you get a little older, you get married, then you'll clean it up and, okay, now I'm going to take the Christian life seriously. That's not in Scripture. The gospel call is a call to believe, to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but at the same time to repent. How can I embrace Christ when, in the other hand, I'm holding on to sin that Christ died for? So I'm, I'm, I'm supposedly coming to Christ for salvation, for forgiveness for my sin, but at the same time over here, I'm loving my sin. I mean, we can't. You, you can't embrace Christ. You can't embrace the call of salvation unless you've broken with sin, at least in your heart, at the heart level, where you've made that heart level break with sin. Even if the, the actual growing and breaking practically from it will take time. But there is a break that happens in the heart at conversion. So God is calling us to believe and repent. So the gospel call, it's the same call to live a holy life. It's, it's not two separate things. Oh, you know, we are Christians, but there's this select group inner circle that's, uh, we are the, the serious Christians. Or we, we've reached that second plane of holy living. That's, no, it's not that at all. We're either a Christian or we're not. There's one gospel call. But then finally, Paul ends here almost uh, a bit sternly, it's surprising. It's almost as if he's, he's, think, he's imagining there's people listening to this or hearing this and kind of not taking it seriously. They're just saying, yeah, I know, I know, you know, that's one of the command, Ten Commandments and I know um, sexual purity is, is an issue. Um, but honestly, I don't think it's that big of a deal. And you're telling me to do all this, like, cut off my hands and feet, like Jesus said, take it really seriously, humble yourself. I mean, maybe leave a relation, an illicit relationship or something like that. I'm just not ready to really engage in that fight quite yet. Well, what, what does Paul say to that kind of attitude? He says, well, okay, if you've been listening up to this point and you're still pushing back a little, he just wants you to know, consequently, he who sets this aside or he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so if, if you're rejecting this or pushing back on this, just know it's, it's not me you're pushing back against. I mean, it's not tra- the traditions of your grandma that you're pushing up against. It's not some religious group that's hyper-conservative that you're pushing back against. It's God. 
that you're pushing back against. It's God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There's many people that say, well, I have the Holy Spirit and I just walk through the fields and I have dreams and God gives me dreams and he whispers to me and speaks to me and I have peace. But then I live this way. I live in sexual immorality at the same time. But but no, it's okay because the Spirit of God is in my life and he's working in me and I, I have such peace about my life and I don't have to get married to this person. I mean, we're in a committed relationship after all. That's, that's minutia. Those are legal details, etc. Well, what does God say? God would say that you are rejecting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he's not in the business of giving you dreams and visions and whispering to you right? And late at night when you're probably just need to sleep, right? You need to sleep more. That might be why you're hearing things. Don't tell me about how close you are to God and how you feel the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, right? I mean, this is a rejection of the Holy Spirit. He is called the Holy Spirit. What he does in us is to produce holiness in us. That's what he's doing, And if you're living this way, that is just a flat-out denial of his work. You're saying to the Holy Spirit, get out of here. I don't want you here. I don't want you to clean up anything here. I don't want to, to know what you've given me in the Scripture. I don't want peace with God. I don't want communion with God. This is a rejection of the Holy Spirit. And that's a very serious thing, obviously. But just in conclusion... I want to speak to you who may be having some conviction on this. And it is is stern. It is solemn. Uh, It is a unique uh, place in Scripture that we are this morning. And you you may be tempted to despair and think, oh, yeah, check, check, check. That's me, right? That's, I am the sinner. I am the sinner. Well, let me just give you one verse for you to go home and meditate on, uh, in conjunction with this passage, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. So that's a warning, right? If you conceal your transgressions, you won't prosper. We're not detectives. I'm not a detective. When I was younger, I used to think the pastor had some sort of special relationship with God and he like knew what I had done that week or he knew what was going on. Some of you might think that way. You think, oh, well, you must be, you must know all this stuff. I don't know anything. I'm not a detective. I'm not out to get you. But if you conceal your transgressions, God will lift the covers on you. You, It will come out eventually. You will not prosper. But on the other hand, the other part of that proverb, it says, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And so do you think Christ will reject you because of what you've done? If you've lived in sexual immorality, do you think that the message today is you're condemned and you need to leave the church and get out of here? Well, God, that's not what God is saying to you. He's warning you. He's warning you to to keep those of you from falling into this lifestyle. But if you are in this lifestyle or coming in fresh from this lifestyle, God says, the one who confesses and forsakes his sin, will receive compassion. And just two things Christ said to to prove that point, right? Prostitutes came to Christ 
weeping for their sin. I mean, it calls them sinners, but that's a euphemism for a sexually immoral woman. In Luke 7, this, wo- this woman comes to Christ weeping. I mean, he's having dinner with Pharisees, and they're questioning him, and, and proud and self-righteous. And this woman, she's so broken, all she can do is fall to her feet and cry. I mean, she can't even talk to him. And what does Christ say to her? He, he turns to her, and without even this big conversation, he just knows what's in her heart. He says, your sins have been forgiven. And so we know for sure, by example, there is forgiveness for this person that lives this way, but comes to Christ with, in true repentance. There's also the prodigal son, right? He demanded his inheritance money early from his dad. Imagine your son doing that to you, saying, Dad, I wish you were dead already. You're so, you're so rich and you got all this stuff. Come on, can't you just die already? Give me your money. Well, that was this guy. That's what he said to his dad basically. And his dad, being very gracious, said, well, okay, I'll, I'll give it to you now. Jesus tells this story, and he says, the son spent it all on immoral living, in other words, on prostitutes. But finally, this man ran out of all his money and was in the mud feeding pigs, wanting to eat pig food. And he came to his senses and returned home and just listened to this, just in closing, what Jesus said. He said, while this son, the prodigal son, was still a long way off. So he wasn't even in town yet. Just a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they will celebrate and they began to celebrate. And so that's a picture of Christ. That's a picture of the Trinity And all the angels, Jesus goes on to say, when one sinner repents, even of this kind of sin and lifestyle, I mean, there's a party in heaven. I mean, God is not going to kick you out or give you a second class status in in the, the kingdom because you're coming out of this. But make it sincere, right? If it's a sincere repentance, God will rejoice. He will have actual joy to see you repent and to join him in his family. The arms of God, I just want to leave you with that picture. The arms of God are open wide to any of you that want to leave this sin, that want to leave this sin, but make it sincere, right? It's not tomorrow. Tomorrow's not the day. I mean, who knows what tomorrow will bring? You may not be alive tomorrow. Today's the day. Today's the day to be serious. Today's the day of mercy. And none of us here, I hope, I certainly won't. We won't reject you. It's not like we're going to to label you forever as the the sexually immoral person, right, that came to us for help. We're not going to treat you like that. I won't. And so let's leave it there. It's it's a heavy, it's been a heavy passage, but I think it's good to, to soberly consider that. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Our Father, we, we are sobered by this warning. 
We are sobered by what devastation it causes in this world every day. And even in, I think, probably all of our families or extended families, we would all be able to see and recognize, yeah, this has really destroyed people and families and children. Uh, You can restore anything. You can restore even the vilest sinner. Uh, But it's, it's something that we need to be afraid of. We pray for a healthy fear of this. That even the next time any of us may be tempted with this, especially younger people, um, that we would call to mind all these warnings. um, That we'd call to mind all these warnings and turn from it and just run the other direction, even if that makes us look silly uh, to our friends or neighbors. We also pray that you would forgive those who have greatly sinned against you in this way. Uh, You say there are few who escape from this type of lifestyle. But we know by by example from from those passages that there really are people who you save and bring out of this life. And so we pray that you would have mercy on anyone here, or maybe even anyone listening to this later that is living this kind of life. We pray that you would draw them, not only with the warnings of Scripture, but also your promises of mercy to the person that comes to you in sincere repentance, confessing their sin and seeking you. And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.